Now it is the time of night that the graves all gaping wide. Every one lets forth his sprite in the churchway paths to glide. This passage is from one of Puck's soliloquies in A Midsummer Night's Dream, Act 5, Scene 1, in which he explores a number of interlinked themes about the how the countryside changes as night falls. The passage is heavy with thick rural imagery. Whilst the heavy plowman snores, whilst the wasted irons glow, whilst the screech owl screeching loud, the land slips from the realms of the earthly and the mortal to that of the supernatural and the immortal. And then beings such as Puck himself come into their own. And we fairies that do run by the triple Hecate's team from the presence of the sun following darkness like a dream. As is his habit, Shakespeare here dips into themes of universal myth, in this case, that of the sun being consumed by night with an eventual promise of its rebirth in the future. However, while the broader theme is universal, the imagery, of, uh, the imagery sets the events Puck is imagining squarely in the context of the English countryside. In doing so, Shakespeare, very cleverly, links the mythological theme with a set of much more local traditions, more associated with the rustic images he is invoking. The churchway paths that Puck describes is a reference to the routes taken by funeral parties on their way to the ceremonies of interment from the place of death. In the pre-modern period, such routes could extend far across the countryside, since the more important churches preserved for themselves the right to conduct burials and to charge for the privilege. In some traditions of British folklore, these routes were believed by some to take on a special significance. One such belief, the subject of Puck's allusion, was that mischievous sprites such as himself might return along the routeway to glide, in fact, and make a nuisance of themselves in the deceased's community. Such traditions, as we, will, as we shall see, were particularly strong in rural areas. These were corpse roads, otherwise known as corpse paths or coffin roads. To the mundane, the modern, or indeed the Christian eye, there seems little remarkable about such routes. After all, the road to the church is simply part of the secular infrastructure surrounding the ceremony and the journey taken there is no more significant than any other organizational detail. The separation in space from a place of death to the place of burial and the consequent need for corpses to be carried for some distance is in itself a, project, a product of the mundane. As the population of late medieval and early modern Britain increased, and as the church, as I say, reserved for itself the right to bury the dead in consecrated ground, and, as noted for, before, to charge for the privilege, so such journeys became inevitable. This lecture is concerned with some of the less tangible results of the mundane, the beliefs engendered by the necessity to convey corpses and their passage across country, what contemporary research methods we can use to learn about these beliefs and their context within the landscape, and what, more, what broader lessons they can teach us about how we explore the affordances of dynamism, mobility, and physical engagement in history and in archaeology. So first, evidence. Um, a word must be said 
at the outset about the kinds of evidence available to study this subject. It is especially important when examining the intersections of folklore, landscape history, culture, and archaeology to beware the pitfalls of pseudo-history and of pseudo-archaeology. It follows from this that the type and quality of evidence one has constrains the kind of question one can sensibly ask. Where the corpse roads came from and what their significance was in the contemporary mind of the early modern period are questions which I would argue are lost to sensible inquiry and can only really be answered with reference to the simplistic resources of folk history. Uh, this problem is far from new in landscape studies. Um, in his searingly elaborate thesis on the connectivity of ancient mounds and monuments published in 1925 as the Old Straight Track, Alfred Watkins argues that a complex framework of civilizations emerged in the British Isles and beyond based on a system of lays, immaterial straight lines uh, uh, connecting such structures together in kind of abstract webs of connectivity. Ley lines are, of course, a staple of pseudo-archaeology, with no material or historical evidence at all to support their hypothesis. Um, accordingly, as Robert McFarlane points out in the introduction to a 2013 edition of the Old Straight Track, the archaeological community at the time did not buy Watkins's thesis at all. After all, there are so many ancient monuments in southern England that one can connect multiple subsets of them in straight lines simply by the inevitability of geometric coincidence. It is just a matter of scale and a matter of statistics. Watkins's thesis went on indirectly to, interview, to influence much 20th century thought on New Age mysticism, and the idea of the ley line remains firmly in this realm. To be fair, I think that Watkins, uh, who was a bluff, practical Herefordshire countryman, would have been aghast at this misappropriation of his work. There is no question that he meticulously and methodically documented the antiquarian features of Herefordshire, and indeed his focus on features of the mundane landscape was groundbreaking at the time. But his own single-mindedness, I think, led him to a dubious synthesis of the data gathered, one that was based on correlation, not on causation, something that anyone who has taught master students will know all about. Um, Watkins was no crank, but the intellectual fate of his work is a salutary lesson. It is worth pointing out that Watkins also drew on existing thinking and made genuine efforts to ground his work in the scholarship of the day. Throughout, for example, he makes several references to R. Hipsley Cox's The Green Roads of England. Published in 1914, this wide-ranging survey of green lanes, which are country tracks of seemingly great antiquity, often scored deeply into the fabric of the land by centuries of footfall or of hooffall, was similarly groundbreaking. Hipsley Cox prefaces his work with the admonition to his reader that, 
Much is and much, much must be guesswork, since all the evidence that remains to guide us are the trackways and earthworks I have endeavored to explain. And the best that can be attempted is to offer a theory that fits together the greatest number of facts. It is, I think, fair to say that Hipsley Cox does not entirely live up to this level of interpretive rigor in the passages that follow, with the picture he paints of pre-Celtic civilizations and Neolithic sun worship. However, again, there is no doubting the methodological rigor of the ways in which he gathers and presents his evidence and the enthusiasm with which he guides his reader through the landscapes of the past. So, deathly geographies to the subject in hand. We can begin by considering more broadly why the journeys associated with death, both before and after it, particularly matter in social, cultural, historic, religious, and yes, in folkloric terms. I believe that this significance arises from a contrast between the mobility of these journeys and the fixity and finality of death itself. Take, for example, one of the most famous gallows sites in English history, the so-called Tyburn Tree. Nowadays, marked by a concrete roundel in the distinctly unglamorous location of the traffic roundabout linking Edgware Road, Oxford Street, and Bayswater Road in West London, executions were carried out at Tyburn from at least the 12th century until the early 18th when the site of execution was moved to Newgate Prison. In that period, the site itself was undoubtedly a place of spectacle and public amusement, especially in the case of well-known or particularly notorious offenders. But perhaps of even greater spectacle was the journey the prisoner took from Newgate to Tyburn along what later became St. Giles and Oxford Street. The fact that a Tyburn execution leveled out the distinction between rich and poor in society, privileging the spectacle and manner of the death over social status, was captured in Alan Ramsey's The Tea Table Miscellany, a collection of choice songs in Scots and English in 1794. Since laws were made for every degree to curb vice in others as well as in me, I wonder why hadn't better company upon Tyburn Tree. But gold from law can take out the sting, and if rich men like us were to swing, twould thin the land such members to string upon the Tyburn Tree. We might further note the fact that this stretch of London thoroughfare constituted part of Watling Street, the Roman road linking Dover with Anglesey, which in turn illustrates the deep, rich social fabric of important routeways and how one utilization in one age can be completely overlain by another later on. In any case, it is clear that the anticipation, the prisoner's interaction or lack of with the crowd and the show put on by the journey constituted a process of build-up and climax across both time and place ending in the finality and fixity of the hangman's noose. So, the physical or geographical destination of the journey taken immediately before or after death 
therefore has symbolism that is as important as that of the journey itself. It is therefore worth taking a moment to examine some of the most important manifestations of that symbolism. A visual motif most associated with the destination of a funeral journey is the yew tree. Um, as well as having been a familiar feature of British churchyards for, um, for centuries, <coughs> uh, yews channel the symbolic and cultural significance often associated with living beings of very, very great antiquity. The significance people attach to them form palimpsests of meaning as different populations have grown, shifted, and changed around them. And this includes the shaping of funeral practices. They are among the most long-lived of British flora, with evidence for their presence in the British Isles from at least 6,000 BC. In his magisterial survey of the subject, The Ancient You, A History of Taxus Bacata, Robert Bevan Jones notes evidence for funerary traditions associated with yew trees dating back until at least the 7th century AD. These practices were apparently in play on the continent, where at Pernon in Picardy, a charter of AD 684 refers to the church's responsibility for the upkeep of the yew. It follows logically from this, as well as from the simple logic of chronology, that many such yews predate, in some cases very considerably, the churches and the churchyards with which they were associated. There is further evidence to suggest some kind of continuity of practice which places yew trees themselves at the ends of coffin roots. The naturalist and pastor Gilbert White, in his Natural History of Antiquities of Selborne, notes, in the churchyard, um, sorry, in the churchyard of this village of Selborne, is a yew tree whose aspect bespeaks it to be of great age. It seems to have been several centuries, um, it's, sorry, it seems to have seen several centuries and is probably coeval with the church and therefore may be deemed an antiquity. The body is squat, short and thick and measures 23 feet in girth, supporting a head of suitable extent to its bulk. This is a male tree, which is the spring in the spring sheds clouds of dust and fills the atmosphere with its farina. Now, the Selborne yew blew over in the storms of January uh, 1990. This event exposed its root bowl and created a large hole, presenting an opportunity for archaeological exploration, which revealed seven complete skeletons and bones belonging to an unknowable number of others. The archaeologists speculated, and by the way, I've included the report in the further readings uh, for, the, for this lecture, if you want to go and um, have a look at it yourself. Uh, the archaeologists speculated, and tantalizingly, it is just speculation, that the presence of these bodies among the roots meant that the yew itself had provided a physical focus for burials, perhaps a kind of axis mundi, a hub upon which some kind of cultural imperative to inter the dead focused, but we do not know for sure. What the archaeologists are able to tell us is that pottery from the deepest and oldest of the graves suggested a date of Kirka 1200 to 1400 AD, 
at which point the yew tree, judging by its diameter, could have been at least two to 300 years old at that point. Crucially, this grave also contained disarticulated human bones, suggesting that it was not the first grave at the site. This, of course, does not prove any continuity of practice from pre-Christian times, but it does continue to demonstrate the very great antiquity of the association between death rituals and the sites of use. Other evidence of this comes from elsewhere. Uh, quoting from the work of Martin and Nigel Palmer, Carol Cusack notes in her history of the Fortingal Yew in Ayrshire, one of the very oldest trees in Europe, that in most cases the churches do not predate the yews. She goes on to note that most churchyard yews are in close proximity to standing stones, stone circles, and pre-Christian burial sites. The tree's long life and ability to survive makes it a sacred symbol of eternity. The yew tree is also evergreen, which may contribute to its associations with life, regeneration, and with immortality. This is also a theme um, that is evident in R.V.W. Eliot's classic 1957 study, Runes, Yews, and Magic, where he describes the Britonic belief that the root of a churchyard yew grows out of the mouth of each corpse buried therein, thus sustaining the former and ensuring its continued survival. However, while some of the more circumstantial backwaters of folklore point to a connection between the yew tree, life, and rebirth, the yew is generally more associated with the rituals of death. Quoting an 1849 SPCK publication, The Life of a Tree, Cusack describes the Fortingal yew, which is uh, pictured here, um, as having a large gap through its middle caused by the older inner rings rotting away as the new outer rings replaced them. She goes on to argue that funerals passed through this gap, and this was a key element of the ceremony itself. Furthermore, in his observations on the popular antiquities of Great Britain, chiefly illustrating the origin of our vulgar and provincial customs, uh, ceremonies and superstitions of 1849, John Brand notes that, to the remarks which have already been made on evergreens used at funerals may be added that the planting of yew trees in churchyards seems to derive its origin from ancient funeral rites, in which Sir Thomas Brown conjectures from its per perpetual verdure was used as an emblem of resurrection. So I think the yew tree in general and the Fortingal yew in particular and the story that it is telling us here shows us a story of contrast, of death and stasis, of life and mobility. It therefore seems natural that the roots taken by a corpse to its final fixed place of burial should attract particular social and cultural significance. And we see that coming through, um, through the yew tree as a particular mof motif of folklore and belief. So, let us turn to material evidence. Um, so, some of the evidence which corpse roads have left in the physical landscape. 
So in Yorkshire, the Swaledale Corpse Road runs from Keld to Grinton. The tradition of this path is captured by, among numerous other sources, the Yorkshire children's writer Malcolm Savile. In a paper produced with the Malcolm Savile Society, Stephen Bigger of the University of Worcestershire provides a quotation from um, his adventure story, The Mystery Mine of 1959. That's the corpse way, Shaman explained, the path that has been there for hundreds of years and until the old church fell out of use and was deconsecrated a hundred years or so ago. Coffins were brought over that hill for burial from, from villages without a church. The old church at Warham Percy was St. Martin's. The church was used by the nearby villages until 1869 long after the deserted village was gone, so locals would have a long walk to the church and the churchyard for worship and for burial. Excuse me. So, oops. Yeah. <coughs> At various points along the route, there were so-called coffin stones. These are flat stones whose purpose seems to have been to provide a point for pallbearers to rest the coffins down and take a much-needed break. Um, this is another example, as we see here, of a coffin stone from the Lake District. Um, for similar reasons of practical necessity, coffins at this time seem to have been made of wicker, very much easier to transport over very long distances than wooden equivalents. The same sort of phenomenon is visible in the lich gates of many churches. So this lich gate, that of um, St. Mary Magdalene at Bolney in Sussex, uh, gives us an example of a dais or a platform within the gateway itself with the express purpose of providing a surface on which to uh, rest the coffin on arrival at the church, and I have to acknowledge the excellent Wikimedia Commons site for the use of this picture, so the full citation of it is right there. This is not my picture, just to be clear of that. So this is a common feature on churchyard gates throughout, particularly the south of England. Um, and indeed, the etymology of the word lichgate itself is telling us the story here, deriving as it does from the Old English word lik, uh, meaning body. So there are various kinds of physical evidence that we can put together with um, sort of other kinds of information, other kinds of anecdotal information to start building up a picture of what a corpse road actually looks like. However, there is further evidence that we can look to from the history of cartography, of which the British Isles are particularly well served through the excellent agency of the Ordnance Survey, of course. Um, so while the idea of the corpse road has left limited evidence in the landscape as mapped by modern cartography, but to my knowledge, there are two explicit references to corpse roads in the Ordnance Survey itself. Um, this is the first one. Um, so this is, um, well, uh, two examples from the Ordnance Survey 6-inch to the Mile series, uh, published at various points in the late 19th century. Um, so the first trackway, as you can see here, 
is a footpath leading from Castleford down to Pontefract, which is right here, and it appears there as well, as you can see. Um, so the first trackway, as it says, is marked Old Corpse Road, um, and this particular first sheet was first surveyed between 1846 and 1848 and published in 1852. Um, it was resurveyed in 1888 and 1899 in between 1905 and 1908, uh, again between 1931 and 1932, and again in 1938. So the quantity and frequency of these surveys was most likely due to the rapid change in the local urban environment, uh, driven by the establishment and expansion of the railway network. But nonetheless, this label, the Old Corpse Road, um, appears on each of these editions, appearing to mark just a short stretch of footpath heading north from a miners' sports and welfare ground, which crops up here in the later um, 19, uh, 20th century edition. It is not there in the earlier edition. I think we can probably draw a connection between the old coal pits marked in 1852 and the miners' sports ground in 1938. It's always fun to trace these little stories through different editions of Ordnance Survey maps. But the old Corpse Road label certainly persists throughout. So connecting other stretches of footpaths to the south, uh, which run on the same alignment, would suggest that this stretch, um, whose label will have been based on local knowledge gleaned by Ordnance Survey surveyors, formed part of a corpse road connecting Castleford with the church of Pontefract, as I said. Now, interestingly enough, an inspection of the Google Maps satellite view of the area indicates that it has now been largely overbuilt by modern housing, although the particular stretch of the path in question appears to be bordered on either side by trees. Um, now, without independently knowing the age of the trees, which I don't, I would just like to say for, for, for the record, uh, we cannot know whether or not this is relevant. However, Later on, I shall offer a little conjecture as to why it just might be. So the second example, I promised you two, um, comes also from Yorkshire, from the moorland areas to the north of the county. So sheet 71, also of the Ordnance Survey 6-inch to the mile series, covers the districts of Borroby, of North and South Otterington and of Nathan. It was first surveyed in 1854, excuse me, with the North Western Quadrant surveyed in 1892 and again in 1911, and the South Western Quadrant at various points between 1892 whoops, and 1930. So again, the old Corpse Road label, which I now can't find. Uh, there, yes. I'm not going mad. It is there, isn't it? Yes. Uh, okay. Yes, yeah, so it was a terror of putting the wrong map onto slides and something like this, but I haven't this time, which is good. Uh, again, the Corpse Road label appears on all of the sheets, on all of the publications of the series in question, 
with the likelihood that it linked the 12th century mother church of St. Michael's at North Otterington, right here, uh, along with the vicarage, as you can see, um, with the outlying settlements of and around Thornton Le Beans and Thornton Le Moor. Um, so, to the west of North Otterington, it is, um, sorry, so I should say to the east of North Otterington, it is cut by, um, uh, it is crosses or is cut by the York, Berwick and Newcastle Railway, which was built seven years before the first survey in 1847. Um, according to the map, it then turns north. Uh, this point right here. It continues north and then branches towards the east, towards north, uh, to, you know, in the direction of North Otterington. Uh, incidentally, the path is still marked on modern Ordnance Survey maps, which uh, is probably worth saying, and also on Google Maps, which presumably draws its data from the same source. So you can just about make that out right there. Um, however, for me, the geography of this pathway doesn't quite work, does it? Um, so it's coming across, you know, oops, sorry. It's coming across right here, randomly going up to the north, randomly going across the east, and actually coming out probably about a quarter of a mile at least too far up, uh, too far up to the north. Um, to my mind, there are two possible explanations for this. Firstly, it could quite simply be a mistake on the part of the Ordnance Survey's 19th century field workers. Uh, as we have seen, they were producing a lot of series of publications of maps in a relatively short space of time. I am sure that it was not above their... their um, ethics to cut the occasional corner, so to say. Uh, I'm not accusing anyone of anything. I'm just putting a possibility out there. But the second possibly possible explanation is rather more beguiling, and that is that some kind of pressure and or misinformation was exerted on the surveyors to redirect the corpse path around a specific parcel of land. Uh, after all, we can see that a bridle road cuts directly to the west towards the church, which would be a far more logical uh, route for a posited corpse path to take. Um, now, why would this happen? The, again, speculative reason would be that the landowner, a landowner, did not want a corpse road crossing their land. And we'll come to that shortly. So if we look at the Google Maps overview again. This is the uh, line of the corpse path. That is roughly where it goes north, and that is the route it takes towards North Otterington. But if we overlay the 19th century map over this, we see that Otterington Grange becomes quite a plausible parcel of land, which is now a, a farm, Grange Farm, I believe it is, um, becomes a fairly plausible candidate for an estate which might not have wanted a corpse path going over it. Um, 
Now, I must stress strongly that there is no independent empirical evidence for this. I am not claiming that there is. And if, and hopefully when, I come to develop this lecture for publication on a peer-reviewed platform, I will certainly have to find some evidence to uh, back this up, but um, hopefully it's, it's okay for YouTube. Um, um, if I can include it. However, it is a plausible hypothesis, and I will come to further evidence a little later which gives further circumstantial support for it. So this next brings me to literary evidence and evidence which folklorists can gain from literary sources. Uh, now, in some ways, this is far more problematic and far more straightforward, and I'm going to explain a little bit more what I mean on that. So the majority of evidence for Corpse Road folklore um, is, in fact, literary and archival. So I have been embarking on the last few years um, on an exercise to source all the written sources I can find which refer to corpse roads, looking for references to them across the British Isles. I've currently, um, at this present time, identified around 40, which I've published as an open document right here. I'll be very happy to let anyone who wants it um, have the link. Um, while this form, the forms of evidence is certainly the most voluminous, it is in archival and literary sources that the challenges of the subject, as I say, become most clear. For example, while it is relatively easy to identify, at least approximately, the starts and finishes points as latitude and longitudes, which is what we, oops, which is what we have right here, uh, uh, finding the actual route itself, connecting A with B, is inevitably far more inferential. And as we just saw with the North Otterington example, such evidence as there is can conspire to trip us up. Um, to fill in the blanks, we very often have to rely on the insights of local historians and geographers um, writers such as Alan Cleaver and Leslie Park, whose excellent Corpse Roads of Cumbria describes their investigations uh, of a few shadows, fading footprints, and famously unreliable oral traditions, but it also contains first-hand accounts of their own experiences walking the said paths and observing features such as coffin rests, which I've already alluded to. As noted earlier, these are flat stones and other points where coffins were rested while pallbearers took a break. Now, this is an exercise very much in the spirit of phenomenology, the branch of thinking in, um, in, in archaeology, which gives weight to experience of the landscape, our own experience of the landscape, our own engagement with the landscape, or how a site, in order to fully understand it, must be experienced rather than relying on purely quantitative material. I'm going to come back to this a little later in my conclusion and top myself up with water. Now, as I noted earlier, returning to the core topic of literary evidence, 
Cumbria and the rural northwest of England seem to be especially susceptible to corpse road folklore. This is perhaps to be expected. Rugged rural areas with numerous local communities far removed from mother churches, which, as previously indicated, retained rites of burial and so on, are bound to foster requirements that would lead to coffins being carried across country. Oral tradition and literary evidence provides us with second-hand um, attestation, um, attestment for this. In 1915, the folklorist and local historian of Cumbria, William T. Palmer, published his Odd Yarns of English Lake, Lake Yard, English, it's really hard to say, isn't it? English Lakeland, in which he states, some of our mountain hamlets are far from the parish church, which has given rise to the corpse road, which goes straight as a lance to the village centre. But the official who dared to meddle with the corpse road, even though it might not be used once in 20 years, was in for dire trouble. The same author addressed the subject in an earlier work, his 1908 The English Lakes, which was illustrated by the watercolorist Alfred Heaton Cooper. In this wide-ranging, choreographic description of the region, Palmer describes the town of Mardale at the southern tip of the Horswater Reservoir. Um, most interestingly for the present discussion, um, he states, sorry, um, the present little church at Mardale dates back some 200 years its graveyard was not consecrated till many years afterwards. Even yet, old Dales folk will point to where the corpse road crossed the fells to Brampton. According to such, there were two roads into Mardale, the Assize Road, by which, almost as the crow flies, juries went into the county town, and the road we have mentioned, used almost exclusively for funerals. Palmer's reference to the churchyard not being consecrated until later is a clear nod towards the necessity for corpses to be transported for burial in ground that was consecrated, in this case, the Abbey Church at Shap, some 50 miles, 15, not 50, 15 miles to the east. Now, obviously, the landscape has changed much in the intervening years. Um, in the case of the road linking Mardale with Shap, which Palmer alludes to here, Mardale itself is no longer inhabited. It was, in fact, flooded in the 1930s in order to form the Horsewater Reservoir to meet the increasing demands for water for the city of Manchester. We must therefore rely on inference and analysis of characteristics of the landscape which do endure to explore the gaps left in the accounts that writers such as Palmer have left us. Two such characteristics are topography and elevation, the physical shape of the landscape itself. Now, some of my current research uh, concerns efforts to synthesize data from various sources to explicate and explain the presence of particular corpse paths using analysis of physical topography. By bringing together publicly, data, publicly available um, data sets, including sheets from the 1880s Ordnance Survey map of the area, whoops, yeah. um, sorry, um, topographic data from, of all places, the United States Geological Survey, 
data on public rights of way and data from openstreetmap.com, which is an open source mapping project identifying contemporary topographic features, we can, be we can begin to do exactly this. So beginning with the USGS data, uh, we can get an overview of the topography of the landscape expressed in its height above sea level. This is a dig digital elevation model, or DEM, of the region, showing the height above sea level of each location with a height value attached to each square in a 30-meter raster grid overlaid over the Earth's surface. You probably won't be able to see from where you are sitting, but um, this kind of grayscale landscape is made up of uh, basically pixels, each one of which represents a 30-meter square area of the landscape. Uh, now, this, of course, has implications for accuracy. 30 meters is quite a long way as a margin of error for walking practices. However, it does allow us to make broad topographic generalizations over a path of 15 miles or so in length. So by combining historic ordnance survey data um, with data from OpenStreetMap, whoops, so this is the um, OpenStreetMap layer, we can show the, the, um, the location of contemporary locations of settlements um, and waterways. Um, and we can also overlay the modern public rights of way. So these green lines are public rights of way data which have been gleaned from the records of Cumbria County Council and made available online as um, sort of open uh, mapping, um, uh, an open map layer. So we can begin to sort of reconstruct the level between the contemporary right of way, between a contemporary metal road, more right of way there, more road, and so on and so forth. And we can begin to kind of look at this logical routeway in the context of the historical map data and the contemporary location data. Um, however, I think we can do better than this. I am currently embarking on um, a slightly more sophisticated set of quantitative analyses which maps least cost pathways between outlying villages such as Mardale and mother churches such as Shap. So the calculations are carried out using geographic information system software, which allows us to crunch the numbers contained in maps of this kind and draw broad, broad statistical inferences for how the features of the landscape work. In the case of a least cost path analysis, we calculate, we use that same 30 meter square digital elevation model to calculate the sequence of 30 meter squares in the United States Geological Survey overlay, which one would have to take in order to expend the least cumulative effort in order to complete the journey from A to B. Whether that effort is expressed in time, in kilojoules of energy expended, is not specified, and it does not need to be. Rather, the idea of cost is expressed in the abstract. This is a preliminary analysis showing different kinds of least cost paths between Mardale and various destination churches that I identified in my survey. Three variables are assumed in this image. One, the cost of a route based purely on topography. 
Secondly, is a route which assumes a cost of one additional pixel when crossing rivers. So this gives us an approximation of how difficult it would be to cross a river if no bridge is present. The third variable assumes that rivers are harder to cross. Um, it gives us a two pixel penalty for crossing rivers. So this allows us to at least conjecturally to account for the observation made by Palmer in the English lakes when he tells us that there were no bridges in the dale then and during winter, even summer, the torrents were at times quite impassable. In particular, it is interesting to note that a two-pixel penalty, oops, I knew I was going to do that, um, that a two-pixel penalty, um, where are we, uh, for, for river crossing takes the reconstructed pathway postulated between Mardale and Beetham, so that's this line here, quite significantly to the east, so this is the green line. So assuming rivers are particularly difficult to cross takes the pathway quite a bit to the, to the east there. Uh, however, the actual present-day path, which corresponds remarkably well to the least-cost path with no penalties at all, still takes in the so-called fairy steps, this um, ghastly-looking bit of um, rocky pathway, which um, is actually quite a significant tourist attraction these days. Uh, in fact, it is described on the Visit Cumbria tourist website as being situated on one of Lakeland's corpse trails, along which the coffins of those who died in more remote and inaccessible wildernesses of the neighborhood would be carried to for burial in the nearby churchyard. So this is a feature whose least cost would still have been very significant. I mean, you can tell just by looking at it, right? We could, especially if you are carrying a coffin. We can assume, therefore, that the traversers of corpse paths were less willing to surmount the obstacles placed by rivers, especially, as Palmer points out, there were so a few or no bridges in the area at this time, and would rather face the challenges of features such as the fairy steps instead. This approach, however, brings methodological risks. Quantification assumes some kind of homogeneity, at least in terms of method. So this is an assumption which must be treated with great caution, as there is so much variation between different reasons. For corpus roads are by no means exclusively northern phenomena. There is plenty of evidence elsewhere for their existence, for at least assertions in the past that corpus roads existed in one form or another. Um, from this, we can, get, we can still draw on the evidence for the psychological power that the idea exerted and in the way that they connected communities, providing further tantalizing insight into the importance that humans attach to movement through the landscape. So let's look at another example, um, again, drawing on literary evidence. So in 1928, the journal Folklore published a note in its correspondence pages from William Self Weeks, entitled Public Right-of-Way Believed to be Created by the Passage of a Corpse. This, it seems, referred to a common misconception among landowners that the passage of a funeral party automatically conferred legal status as a public, uh, public right-of-way on the path they took. We might speculate, might be not, that the otherwise anomalous right-angled deviation of the old corpse road around Otterington Grange might have been due to some such consideration on the part of its owners. 
Indications of such a belief are certainly recorded elsewhere. In 1977, for example, also in folklore, a letter to the editor from A. Vickery stated, uh, many writers on folklore, e.g. Christina Hole, editor of Encyclopedia of Superstitions of 1961, mentioned the widespread belief that the passage of a corpse or funeral procession across private land establishes a public right-of-way. At the entrance to Palace Road, a wooden signboard in good condition states, private road, heavy traffic, funerals and hawkers prohibited. So while the prohibition of heavy traffic and hawkers is understandable, the ban on funerals can only be explained in the light of this belief and might therefore be worthy of record. I would like to thank the author of this letter himself for bringing it to my attention, by the way. Now, no such provision has ever existed in the statute, civil or common laws concerning trespass or land ownership. I did look this up. Uh, having debunked the actual notion itself with reference to an early uh, question and answer in the journal Justice of the Peace, Weeks goes on to propound the theory that the idea of corpse paths comes from an agricultural practice of deliberately leaving a strip unplowed along a field's, field's edge to allow the carriage of bodies. He refers to beer belts, wider strips of turf left between the plowed strips of land in certain places, especially for funeral ways. In support of this view, Weeks quotes correspondence in the Times Literary Supplement, which responded to a previous letter on the subject that he, Weeks, published there 10 years previously. This came from L.R. Phelps of Oriel College, Oxford. Um, so he writes, in many parishes, the church path is a familiar feature. Where I knew it best, at Littleworth in Berkshire, now Oxfordshire, it connected an outlying hamlet with its parish church at Farringdon, some two miles off. The characteristics of a church path that is never ploughed over, but stands out from the field, hard and dry, and of a width sufficient to allow the bearers of a coffin to walk abreast along it. Now, a public right-of-way still exists between Littleworth and Farringdon, as can be seen from the data provided by the Oxfordshire County Council and digitised by the rights-of-way map site from which I got the rights-of-way data in the analysis of the Mardale Shap Road, which I've just shown. Uh, so Farringdon and its 11th century church, All Saints, is at the western edge of the path. Um, uh, sorry. Um, so a 2014 archaeological survey of the church's environs in preparation for new facilities being built at the church found evidence for 341 burials of a range of ages uh, in the churchyard. Of course, one cannot easily tell from such evidence the places of death and thus where the bodies were born from, but in their conclusion, the investigators note, the community of believers excavated at All Saints comprised a broad church, Although no clearly high-status individuals were recovered, the investigation revealed a broad demographic section through the population of men and women, children and adults. The excavation showed the degree of care attached to the ill and dying, as well as concern for the well-being of the dead. The prosaic realities of country life and death from the late medieval to 19th century were revealed by the work carried out at All Saints. So, as for the path from Littleworth, two clues immediately jump out in support of Phelps's recollection. At Littleworth itself, a footpath sign pointing west at the edge of the village indicates Church Walk uh, to Farringdon. 
This is also the name ascribed to the path in the Ordnance Survey, six inch to the mile series, um, of which the first sheet was published in 1883. Secondly, just outside Farringdon is Church Path Farm, also labeled thus on Google Earth. Um, site of which includes a curious chapel-like outbuilding with Gothic-style arching. The walk itself is flat, easygoing, and suitable for the transportation of a load, um, crossing a total of four fields. The easternmost of these fields is large and flat, and the time I walked it uh, was recently harvested of, I think, uh, kale. Now, the pathway adopts a slightly different direction to the plough lines, which might be of significance, as these should at least preserve the orientation of the field. So it seemed, again from my physical engagement with the path, uh, that the difference between the path and the plough lines right? yeah, okay. uh, might suggest that the field had been subdivided into strips of a more southwesterly orientation than it is today, and that the path predates it. So the most obvious reason for this would be a change to accommodate the construction of the road to the south, which connects Farringdon to the present-day A420. However, when I reflected on this path in a post on my personal blog in 2018, the parish clerk of Littleworth, DJ Mackey, contributed a response, shedding light on why the path and the plough lines were misaligned. It was a result of the hedges and the fields that the Beerbalk Church Way walk, he wrote, followed as a headland path, were grubbed out by the landowners in, I believe, the 70s, prior to the enactment of legislation that now protects headland paths. Thus, churchwalk path along this section became a cross-field path no longer protected from cultivation. It is reported that churchwalk was indeed a beer bulk, but built up with resting places for coffin bearers to rest the coffin at strategic points between Littleworth and Farringdon. Once again, therefore, the importance of local knowledge in these matters is um, highlighted. So because I am a little short of time, I'm going to skip the last bit where I was going to just um, bring this all together in a little more detail, but I think in the interest of time I will jump straight to my conclusion. Um, this lecture has sought to introduce the idea of the corpse path or the corpse road as a legitimate subject of interdisciplinary study. In my view, corpse roads, although undoubtedly a magnet for the eccentric and the off-the-wall, are a testimony to the imaginative power of the physical experience of movement through the landscape at important parts in life and death, and of the kinds of imperatives which drove connections through the landscape. However, simply by imposing critical limits on the kinds of things we ask, we can, I believe, avoid the posthumous fate of Alfred Watkins. As the anthropologist Tim Ingold might say, corpse paths are very particular forms of taskscape. I am interested in why they became important enough, at least for some people, for Shakespeare to write about them, for them to persist in the oral traditions of Lakeland, and to feature on today's Ordnance Survey maps, and indeed Google Maps. I have attempted to suggest some answers to this in this evening's lectures. More broadly, I would like to conclude with a plea that interdisciplinary approaches, especially where supported by scientific quanti specific quantitative methods such as GIS, raise the general possibility of the history and archaeology of pathways, and by extension, the history and archaeology of mobility more generally. Constrained by the limitations of physical and artifactual evidence, much investigation of ancient and historical landscapes has focused on the site, the point, the specific place. 
I think the Corpse Road suggests that approaches based on subjective interpretations of the past, which combine vastly differing forms of evidence, including that of contemporary experiential engagement, can open up completely new modes of inquiry. And that is exciting. Thank you very much. Thank you.